For episode four, we explore the adoption of 3D printing within education by highlighting three presenters from the Construct3D 2020 3D Printing Educator Conference from this past February at Rice University in Houston, Texas. This episode will feature interviews and presentation highlights with Glenn Walters, Beam Senior Advisor from UNC Chapel Hill, Tim Pula, Interactive Exhibits Inventor from Spark Labs at the Smithsonian, and Construct3D keynote speaker Melody Yasher, architect and co-founder of Space Exploration Architecture, Search Plus. Ultimaker is a co-founding sponsor of this National Academic 3D Printing and Digital Fabrication Conference and Expo, a vendor agnostic event that brings together hundreds of faculty, staff, and students from informal K-12 and higher ed settings to exchange ideas, develop skills, and influence the direction of 3D printing and education. We created episode four out of tribute to the many 3D printing educators out there who have continued to find new and compelling means of teaching 3D printing and design concepts to students, learners, and others in virtual contexts. In these three stories, we focus on how adapting additive into research and design opens a learner up to more ways to solve a problem, preparing the way for advanced manufacturing materials and digital design frameworks for the careers of tomorrow. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business innovators and allies to discuss the impact of adopting additive manufacturing. How does adopting additive manufacturing benefit a business today? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to our fourth episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays, every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, and materials that enable professional designers and engineers to innovate every day. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. Our first guest today is Glenn Walters, Beam Senior Advisor at UNC Chapel Hill. Glenn is teaching faculty in the Department of Applied Physical Sciences at UNC Chapel Hill and is the director of the Beam Design Center, a design and fabrication facility that specializes in the development of unique tools and instrumentation for research. He is also a founding member of the UNC Beam Makerspace Executive Committee and the Senior Technical Advisor to Beam. I really value the richness of the contacts that I make at Construct3D. The the exchange of information and ideas and different ways of approaching things, that's hugely valuable. And a lot of that happens just in the hallways, running into people. And I love being exposed to people that are in the K-12 world. I don't think there's ever a meeting where I don't go back and create something that's inspired by something that's being done at K-12 for for the students here. So the session that I presented with William Dodge, who's an architect that has worked with us at UNC, was called On Making a Makerspace. And we tried to make it rather than just a narrative of the history of how we created a particular makerspace, it was a kind of an overview of how relationships and partnerships and talking to people is the most important part of trying to create a makerspace out of thin air anywhere. Our particular experience was here at UNC Chapel Hill. And so we laid out how that happened with three different makerspaces here at UNC, none of which could have happened if we hadn't been very, very open and very 
assertive about establishing relationships and talking to people, thousands of, literally thousands of people. Glenn and I sat down for a lengthy interview about how they have adopted 3D printing at UNC, in specific within the Beam makerspaces, which touches on many of his key themes and findings. And it is my pleasure to share highlights of this discussion here with you. Tell me a little bit about the institution where you work. Uh, UNC Chapel Hill is the oldest public university in the United States. And one of the big strengths here is that it has a very holistic view of, of a liberal arts education. That we're able to do something so technical within a college of arts and sciences and provide essentially an engineering experience to students across the spectrum. And I think the fact that we don't have an engineering school has really made it possible for us to expand our network and, and realize our mission the way we have, that is to serve everyone here on campus. When did you first encounter 3D printing? I probably first encountered 3D printing around 2010. Uh, the biomedical engineering department here has had uh, a couple of large Stratasys dimension machines for a very long time. Uh, the first printer that I actually bought for my shop operation was 2013, I think. And it's been ever upward since then. <laughs> That's great. And just as a, a sort of a snapshot, how many 3D printers do you have here on campus at the various sites and in your own lab? Oh, gosh. Within the Beam Makerspace network, we probably have around 50 printers altogether. The majority of them are Ultimaker 3s. I currently have two in my shop. I also have three in my garage at home. <laughs> So we're pretty well saturated, and we really don't have a handle on how many other printers there are on campus. We don't always know when individual labs are buying them, but we know there are quite a few out there. So how did 3D printing change your processes? We were working on a device, a really fairly complicated device that actually is a product now that a company is selling uh, that exposed lung cells to aerosol particles. And we needed an exposure tray that didn't exist. We had done various machined versions of the tray, and they worked okay to well. But we needed to try a lot of different iterations of that, and we needed to do it fairly quickly. So probably the very first experience I had was actually farming something out. And we had a couple iterations of the tray done in a few materials, including a carbon impregnated material, because we were looking at the effect of conductivity on the process. So that changed my process because we were able to quickly turn around design iterations without tying up our limited machining resources because they were fairly involved to machine. We subsequently machined the winning candidate because the machine versions still work better. That really drove me to buy the first small 3D printer and we started out to do conventional rapid prototyping where we would print an object first but the intention all along was ultimately to machine the object. So that let us work through a lot of design iterations on complex parts. And fairly shortly after that, we actually did our first project where the original intent was to do prototyping and then machining, but we discovered that the 3D printed parts performed just fine. So the project was uh, incubators for incubating water samples in the field. It was Peru the first time where we needed to adapt a thermoelectric cooler like you would put sodas in or whatever in your car uh, and adapt it so that it could also run off of a locally available fuel. 
kerosene was what we started with, but in Peru, kerosene is used in the cocaine processing industry, so the government was fighting hard to regulate it and make it unavailable. But methanol, for some reason in Peru, is widely available, so we developed a methanol burning lamp. Uh, there were no 3D printed parts in that, but to modify the thermoelectric cooler so that it could be heated by an uh, alcohol lamp, we developed a passive thermostat and venting system that integrated about a dozen 3D printed parts. And we assumed that because of the heat and all this other stuff that that was just for testing purposes. It turned out it worked perfectly. We had a half a dozen of these units deployed all over Peru and they worked flawlessly for the duration of the study. And the following year, we had to do a version of this to use in Liberia. In Liberia, you can't get methanol, but it turns out you can get uh, butane cylinders. So whole different burner arrangement. There were some 3D printed parts involved there, some modification of the design. And again, a half a dozen of them deployed all over the country, jungle, wherever, uh, worked flawlessly for three months. And my understanding is they're still being used there four years later. So it was amazing to me that these parts printed out of PLA were able to hold up to some very demanding conditions and continue to work way beyond our expectations. So that really sold me on the value of 3D printed parts beyond just being a prototyping tool. We continue to use 3D printing. It was particularly valuable to us for complex parts that were going to be machined to be able to print them in cross-section. But ever since 2014, we provide clients with 3D printed final parts in many cases for their applications. One of the things that was unsatisfying from the beginning was the limited range of materials that we were able to use on that first printer. PLA is not an engineering material by any means, and the solutions that I need to provide people have to be robust, durable, uh, chemical resistant, heat resistant, the, the usual things that engineered parts need to do. Uh, so very early on, I was experimenting, pushing beyond what it was intended to do. And I very quickly decided I needed another printer to add to that. So I bought the very first Lulzbot Taz. But I think the next printer that we, we had was a, probably a Robo 3D low-end heated bed, and that was able to produce a fair number of parts. And then at that point, uh, we started to implement Ultimakers here on campus. And ever since then, I've primarily been doing uh, parts on Ultimakers. The only exception to that is where I have a very flexible material where I need direct extrusion. You went from getting a couple of machines to help you make the parts you needed to setting up this network of labs that have a lot of printing capability. What was that transition like? What attracted you to the idea of having a room full of uh, printers available to students? I'd say that what, what drove me to that is the belief that we needed to provide uh, as much access to the technology as possible to everyone on campus. What actually drove the vision and the funding of it was the idea that we would be able to show visitors a room full of 3D printers doing stuff. We have thousands of visitors a year come through to see our facilities and to be kind of wowed by the technology in the window. My belief has always been providing maximum access to people that are interested or think they might be interested in using the technology, uh, but it definitely has marketing value as well. In fact, there's a student behind us, Charlotte, with the red hair. She applied to 15 colleges. She wanted to be a mechanical engineer. 
UNC was the only school she applied to that didn't have an engineering program. She came here, she saw the makerspace, and she made the decision on the spot that she was going to come here instead of go to any of the other schools. And she's very glad that she did come here because the access to technology is, is wide open. Talk to me a little bit about the, the makeup of the students, staff, and faculty making use of the space. Our use is to support the three key missions. Personal use, just letting people do what they want to do. Curricular use, supporting instructors in finding ways to implement makerspace activities in, in their classes. And research use to support researchers that need to develop things to use in the lab or, or for their research. And we get a pretty good mix of all three uses. We have around 400 courses a year that, that directly integrate a makerspace experience into the course. Uh, we have a full-time person whose job is to work with those instructors and shaping what that can look like to make sure that we're providing meaningful makerspace experiences. We have dedicated research hours every day in at least one of the spaces. And those are times where only people working on research projects have access to the equipment. We found that that really helps. It was a problem before when researchers had to compete with recreational use. When we walked around uh, the various spaces, you would say, oh, oh, and, and a student came in and did this. And, and you get really excited about telling the stories of how people have solved things. Number one is a student who's graduated now, but we were starting to get the makerspaces off the ground when she was a, a first year here. She came here with zero making experience. She was here majoring in biostatistics. She discovered Beam, she discovered the makerspaces, and she just passionately was embracing every technology, one after the other. Her sophomore year, she started working in archaeology department, and she became their go-to person for digitally capturing relics and recreating relics. She got an internship at the Smithsonian her junior year, where she was working with them to help them develop their archive of digital relics and verifying the printability of stuff. It just completely changed her life. She went from zero making experience whatsoever to be mastering virtually everything we offer. She's at grad school now. She has a close association with the Smithsonian. And because of her experience in the makerspace, she has changed the direction of the career that, that she thought she might have been going into. And she has positioned herself as an individual with a rare set of skills that are almost entirely based on her experience here in the makerspace. Thanks again, Glenn, for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about the Beam network of makerspaces that Glenn introduced, please visit them online at beam.unc.edu. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. We hope that Talking Additive will provide an interactive avenue for our audiences to critically engage in the conversation around the impact of adopting additive manufacturing. We hope that this episode is of particular value to the educators, students, and institutions seeking to address these questions in the education space. And we thank Construct3D and these speakers for partnering with us to provide clips from the 2020 conference event at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs all across the world that have remained open and fully operational during these complicated times. And we'd appreciate it if you could post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening.
Our next guest is Tim Pulla from the Smithsonian. He is the interpretive exhibits inventor for SparkLab, a hands-on invention studio within the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. Tim specializes in the creation of open-ended hands-on activities in museum environments and has over the past six years added 3D printing to his practice, taking it from an area he was just exploring as a potential museum activity to a trusted invention tool he uses when developing and executing the dozens and dozens of unique interactive experiences he produces every year. Exhibits, I should point out, that must meet the challenge of needing to survive encounters with the 240 to 250,000 curious visitors to the Spark Lab space each year. We are sharing a clip from his talk, Tool Approach to Rapid Prototyping Technologies in Informal Education Environments, that was a feature talk at Construct 3D 2020 on February 14th, when he introduced audiences to his first experiences incorporating 3D printing within a museum and provides a context in which he uses the technology today. We are joining Tim right as he has acquired his first desktop 3D printer kit. So we were trying to find any little way to use this in an educational format. And then uh, we got it together, began to work. The first print was something that we downloaded from Thingiverse. The second print, I had to draw from scratch. I was like, I, I don't want to download more models. I, that, that's enough. One is enough. Everything else has to come from scratch. The second one was a nameplate, which really wasn't spectacular, but at the same time, it was something of my own creation. So that, that was the uh, tack that I decided to take. And then the great epiphany came. We had a, a set of activities around aviation in our space. And one of the things that we did is we had bought a, a quadcopter for this, and we'd fly it around the museum, talk about the dynamics of how the propellers work, how, how transitioning forces cause it to move one way or another, that type of thing. And I was learning to fly inside the museum and crashed it hard. I broke a piece on it and really felt bad because we had just spent a large uh, sum of money on this thing and didn't know what to do with it. And then uh, our head of drama in the museum because uh, actors know everything. He, he came to me and said, why don't you just 3D print a part? What's wrong with you? You have this machine. We have the, the thing broke, pull the part out, 3D print one. So at this point, I did download my second item because I wasn't quite ready to be able to draw something that would fit this, but I did find that they had the little cross section in the center there uh, actually was available on Thingiverse. So this little cross section is what I snapped. I downloaded it, fixed it, and then that epiphany set me on the way. From this point on, as we developed activities for our space, which we changed once a month in this space, we changed all the different activities that kids would do in the space, we changed it once a month, we, we began 3D printing parts to create custom pieces that allowed us to reach educational goals that we couldn't otherwise reach. So as we had this 3D printer, we also had people asking these questions. What can we use it for in the museum? So replacement part, print replacement parts, that was the first thing. Visitor engagement, as we built it, we were able to do that. Classes, so we set up workshops and developed workshops around 3D printer, actually teaching kids how to utilize it and how it works. We set up one hour classes where we talked about the 3D printer and just let kids work in 3D drawing software to kind of understand what a 3D space looks like. What does that environment look like? How does that work? And then we also decided to create those activity components, which allowed us to reach new heights in what we could do with interactives, with physical interactives. Shortly after that, I found my spot in the museum flagship. I got a job at the Smithsonian, which was a wonderful opportunity. They were reopening a space called Spark Lab. How many of you have been to the National Museum of American History in DC? And how many of you have been to Spark Lab or seen Spark Lab? 
So Spark Lab, just to give you kind of a where we fit in the tier of this full government uh, structure of the Smithsonian. So the Smithsonian is 19 museums, a national zoo, and nine research centers. And I believe that number has changed a little bit. Our mission is the increase in diffusion of knowledge. So that's our mission. We are inside the National Museum of American History. We have some great objects in that museum, star-spangled banners there, uh, President Lincoln's hat, ruby slippers from uh, Wizard of Oz, and for more contemporary examples, Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstein guitar. And we also have Tony Hawk's first skateboard, the one that his brother gave him that got him into skateboarding. So things like that as well. So great, great collection. Uh, Julia Child's kitchen out of her house is in there as well. So within the National Museum of American History, another layer down, we have the Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. So this is the unit that I work in within the American History Museum. This unit, uh, they research history of invention. We also have education programs, which Spark Labs is a part of. We do public engagement. We have a scholarship program as well. And we also work with archives and collections. The Lemelson Center was founded by Jerome uh, Lemelson. Jerome Lemelson was a prolific American inventor. He has over 600 patents. Uh, his patents range from everything from machine vision to toys, medical equipment. So his, his patent portfolio is huge. He had this large sum of money that came in from a number of his patent, basically legal battles, uh, and this large sum of money he used to set up the center. One of his visions, though, was that he was disappointed in the fact that kids knew actors and, and athletes, but they didn't know inventors. So he wanted to change that. So that was one of the reasons he set up the center, and it's one of the reasons we developed Spark Lab. So this is the Spark Lab space. It's a 2,000 square foot space in, the, in that museum. We have a display case at the front, which at that time had patent objects in it, but now actually displays objects that kids have invented from an invention challenge that we run online. So we're trying to show everyone that everyone is inventive. We have activity stations, and then we have this object wall, which is actually full of uh, museum collection objects and props that fit along a theme to guide people as they go through their process. So we do believe that everyone is inventive. It doesn't matter what kinds of physical or even intellectual abilities or disabilities you may have. We lay out our activities and we lay out our approach so that it doesn't matter. Anyone can engage in Spark Lab. It's scaffolded in such a way that anyone can get involved in the process of invention. And our goal is to get people to be confident in their ability to solve problems and to figure out solutions for things that, in their lives. When I first got to the Lemelson Center and, and looked at the Spark Lab space and said, okay, so we're gonna set this up. We're gonna have you create activities for this space. You're gonna create activities quarterly along a theme. And by creating activities, that means six to eight new hands-on things that kids can do along any particular theme. And the first thing I said to him is, I'd like a 3D printer, please. At this point, believe it or not, that museum did not have a 3D printer in, in place. So this was 2015, and I was surprised. I thought they'd have them everywhere in, in Smithsonian. A few sites had them, but not too many. Our deputy director, the first thing he said to me is, can you print more than Yoda heads with it? Poor Yoda gets a bad rap when it comes to 3D printing, but yeah, we, they said, can you print more than Yoda heads? And it's like, yeah. And he's like, who's gonna maintain it? I can do that, I can maintain the thing. And then what are you gonna do with it was the next question. And I was like, I'm gonna create activities with it. What, what else would we do with this thing? We're not printing Yoda heads. We're gonna maintain it, we'll create activities. So here's an example of what activities look like in Spark Lab, and a couple of different examples of how we've utilized the 3D printing to do different things. So each activity that we have, we have, we have six to eight of these activity stations in the space, 
The acti each activity station has a title, which basically describes what you're gonna do, a small text that gives context. Uh, I know you can't read it on this one, but it's just a small text that gives context. And then a created panel here, which basically gives you, here's your challenge. We, we ask is, can you invent a new interior for a Metro car? And what would it look like? How would it make people feel more comfortable? This particular activity here with the Metro car, this one we 3D printed on our Ultimaker and it took about two weeks to print this thing in, in the end. But basically it is a, it's a three and a half foot long, 114th scale Metro train, open top. And the whole inside, we lined it all with, with, with sheet metal so that magnetic toys can connect to the inside. And we also 3D printed seats, we 3D printed people, wheelchairs, uh, luggage, all kinds of stuff to actually give kids the opportunity to try and redesign and recreate what would the inside of a train car look like. This also connected to an object that we have in our collection, which was a, an elevated car, an L car from Chicago that we have in the collection, as well as when people come to DC, many of them ride the Metro to get around. So let's take a look at what learning looks like in Spark Lab. Here's one example of what it looks like. Kids highly engaged, parents completely disengaged. That's just one example. Uh, these kids here are actually reinventing the skateboard, so they're creating different skateboards, and, and then actually in the cases back behind them, right here you'll see Eddie Van Halen's guitar, but only a few cases over was Tony Hawk's skateboard. So we were able to actually reference that when they were building those in the space. Another thing it looks like is kids collaborating. So this activity here, they're challenged to just invent a vehicle. We give them a bunch of PVC pipe, a bunch of wheels, set them loose, tell them to invent a vehicle. Then we start asking them questions. We have facilitators in the space that will ask questions. They're like, well, what does your vehicle do? What do you need to invent a vehicle to get over rough terrain, to move food to market, or to get it to somebody in, in a village that's far away? You know, how would you do that? So kids come up with their solutions. We also have this one here where kids explore things. This one's our high wire driver. Invent, a, invent something that can drive along a wire. That one in itself, some of you guys may have tried doing things like this. It's a very, pretty big challenge to give kids. Uh, this is one of the first places where we really utilize the 3D printing technology in, in this particular space. You'll, you'll see this, this young girl here, she actually has a 3D printed, basically it's a gearhead motor that we 3D printed motor covers for because uh, for all of you who've worked with gearhead motors, you know that the little tabs on the motors will pull off you know, really quick, right? So in our space, we get about 240, 250,000 students a year. So having that kind of, yeah, having that kind of tweaking on those tabs, they're not gonna last long. So we created a covering for it. We created magnetic connectors to make it easy for the kids to connect it so that it was more about actually doing the activity and not trying to figure out the wiring, not trying to figure out the problems of why isn't this working, but more of, you know, why isn't it sitting on the wire? Why can I not drive along the wire? Things like that. So actually guiding what happens as they're inventing. I called Tim at his home in early March to follow up with him less than a month after his featured talk at Construct3D about the role of 3D printing in museums and changes in how museums are engaging with audiences virtually right now. So first of all, thank you so much for coming to join us at Construct3D this year. I'd love to get some thoughts from you. First off, I feel honored that you uh, invited me to come and to speak. I saw a large group of informal educators and formal educators, people who were doing things that really tried to reach the public, either through hands-on activities or through uh, just all kinds of different approaches, but really reach the public and reach kids in a way where kids actually got their hands onto things where they were doing. That was what was so cool. It's more than just learning and taking in information. The passion of the people there was all about doing stuff and tactile, and that was amazing. 
I was amazed at the variety of what I saw there. I mean, everything from 3D models or for film with the Leica Studios folks to the 3D modeling software from Autodesk to laser cutting and CNC equipment from different manufacturers across the board. My presentation was on using 3D printing in an informal environment and basically how we use it as a tool. That uh, a lot of museums have 3D printers. And just like I talked about earlier with you, we got this thing, it's like, what do we do with it? Just finding a, a path or a mode to be able to utilize it where people who are visitors can engage with it, even if they only have a short stay time in the museum or short short time with you, they, they get to engage with 3D printing in one way or another, whether it's something in their hand that is not just a bust of Yoda's head, but it might be a, a part, they interface with something else to invent something, or it might be a, a wheel that, uh, that rolls on two different axes because of the way it's been 3D printed, and, and it makes it where they can think about things in a different way. We've utilized the 3D printing to create unique activities, unique experiences that are compelling, that we can 3D print parts that allow things to be intuitive. We 3D print parts that allow us to have durability in our activities that we otherwise wouldn't have. And what was the response? What did people who attended say to you after the presentation? I had quite a few people come up to me and say, that's really neat what you guys are doing with 3D printing. And I like how you're utilizing it in the museum space and using it in a, in, in such a different way rather than just making stuff for the sake of having people see stuff being made. And ended up spending a lot of time brainstorming with uh, people about different types of activities that, that they might make for their space. I brought up with Tim a few of the questions I had asked Glenn and Melody to help our listeners hear best understand the role of 3D printing from his perspective within informal education contexts, such as there at the Smithsonian. From a museum perspective, it depends on the museum, and that's something that we've seen before. There are some museums that have makerspaces in them because they have a high repeat visitation. There are other museums like ours where our repeat visitation is around 20% or less. Uh, because we are more of a three-time-in-your-lifetime destination type thing. For us to have 3D printing, because it's such a slow process, it's not slow, but it's a relatively slow process in that it may take a few hours, but extremely fast compared to manufacturing, it's not something that plays well in a space like ours. But in those community museums, small community museums, it does play well, that people can learn to draw, learn to do, do different things, 3D print something and come back and pick it up the next day. And we see that in a couple of our network site museums. But it, it's really going to depend on your environment. And then when it comes to schools, it's a captive audience. They're there for a long period of time you know, for the full school year. So 3D printing can be pretty useful there and that kids can learn digital design and actually get in their hands the things that they created. Whoever is teaching it or whoever is handling it as an educational tool for the kids really needs to understand the technology enough to know what they're capable of doing with that technology because the kids are going to figure out how to draw stuff. The kids are going to pick it up pretty quickly, and that's what I'm seeing. And when they see that there's a purpose to it, I think that's the big thing education is going to have to do is show them there's a purpose to this. It's not just you're learning to create cool things, but there's there's a purpose to it. It's, oh, yeah, I made this nameplate, but... What about these things that are helping people with diseases? What about these things that are helping people that inexpensive prosthetics, those types of things? When they see the purpose, I think that is what we need to key kids into. 
and it doesn't have to always be in this grand purpose. It could also be, oh, here's a here's a way to make a sensor more more stable, or a way to make a part on a stroller more solid, or or whatever it is, or more convenient. That kind of stuff. And that's where the invention ideas come in. What would you invent to? add to a stroller to make it easier for your mom to push your little brother around or that kind of thing there's still that purpose i think that's the key is letting them see that i wonder if 3d printing isn't just the the perfect tool for fostering an inventor mindset you, you spoke a yeah. little bit about that in your talk what, what yeah. are your thoughts about it, it, it is I, I really think it is. I think 3D printing is a great way to foster an inventor mindset, especially when the skill building is already in place. That, I think that's the other thing. You have to have the skill building. You need to be able to use the digital design tools. 3D printers nowadays are so easy to use. When I describe it to visitors, I say it's really not much more complicated than trying to get a really nice photo out of your inkjet printer. It, it, you have to know your media size, you have to know what resolution you want, things like that. And, and it's not all that different, especially with a good machine. Like our Ultimaker is a workhorse. I think it's broken down once in three years or something like that. And then the only other prints that have failed on us were because of something I did. <laughs> but, That's great. But uh, yeah, but other than that, it is a workhorse and it, it's just so easy. It's a plug and play type thing. So just being able to create the designs. When people get those skills down, then it just makes it easy for invention. Then you can just go, oh, anything I can imagine, I can create the design. And if I can create the design, the printer can make it. As long as I understand the printer enough, you know, then, so I can pretty much make anything. And that's, that's what's fantastic about it. You mentioned that you've used 3D printing as your creative tool. You can accomplish so much with it. But in addition to inspiring others to invent, I mean, this seems to be a tool that really gives you opportunities to invent. It really has been. There have been a number of things that I've created where we've set them out on the floor and they've been activities. And we've had visitors come through and say, where did you get this? Where do I buy this? Where do I buy this set? Where do I buy these pieces? Where do I buy these connectors? And and we've had people ask that before, and we basically just tell them, oh, these are custom. We just custom made these with our 3D printer. I also asked him his advice for those looking to adopt 3D printing in their businesses, schools, or museums. For anybody who's in business that where any kind of manufacturing or production or, you, or you know, one-off development or R&D, having a printer, if you just get one, you'll find uses for it. And it may sound kind of like a backwards approach to things, but... The abilities of the machines, they print such high quality nowadays versus in the early days when, when I started out with them. The prints are such high quality and you will find uses. You'll find things that go, oh my gosh, we can use this to work on this type of prototype that we've been wanting to do. And you really should just get a 3D printer and just dive in. Thinking about 3D printing from an education perspective, if you really need to think about how you want to utilize it, think about what you want to do with it first. Think about how you'll engage whatever group you have for however long you have and for whatever volume that you have of learners. Think about who your audience is first before you decide what you want to do with 3D printing. I would say out of all the different groups of people that I that you can think about who might want to get into 3D printing, I would say education is one where you really need to have a bit of a plan 
before you buy the machine. I know a lot of educators pick out stuff that's like, oh, this one was pretty cheap, or we found the cheapest one on the market, and that's what we ordered. And I would say, don't do that. And I've told a lot of educators that. Find something that is robust, that is not necessarily industrial, but so many of the desktop ones nowadays are industry quality. And spend the extra money to get something that's going to work for you so that the lesson doesn't become for the kids. Oh, there's this great technology out there, but it's always broken. You know, find something that's durable and workable and figure out yeah, how you're going to use it. But definitely know what you're going to do and spend the money to get a good quality machine. Thank you again, Tim, for joining us on Talking Additive. If you're interested to see more of Tim's work, you can visit SparkLab virtually by going to invention.si.edu slash SparkLab. Or you can wait for the Smithsonian to reopen and make your way to the National Museum of American History on the Mall in Washington, D.C. to visit his impressive and ever-changing exhibits within the Draper SparkLab site for yourself. For our last guest, we follow up with Construct3D keynote speaker Melody Yasher, a designer and architect whose career takes her further and further into aerospace with every new project. Melody Yasher is a designer, architect, researcher, and co-founder of Space Exploration Architecture, Search Plus, a group building upon a 10-year portfolio of academic space research and practice developing human-supporting concepts for space exploration. While Melody isn't currently associated with an educational institution, her entry into this field emerged from an academic context, and her technical papers and collaborations with NASA and other construction and aerospace companies are evidence of Search Plus's commitment to contributing to our collective knowledge. Hi, everybody. I'm really excited to be here because... I don't very often get to talk about the origins of Search Plus, which is the group that I represent and who's done all of this work in 3D printed habitat design, but it's especially exciting for me to come to an academic context because that's where we started. My startup is an applied research practice where we investigate the future of humanity in outer space, particularly through habitat design. And we got our start as an informal group of students that had recently finished Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, my background being in architecture. Work in NASA Centennial Challenges is purely voluntary. It started in phase one as nights and weekends. And that's why I feel it's so critical to be sharing this work with students in particular, because there was nothing that we had at the time that you don't in putting these projects together. We've expanded and expanded so much to the point where now NASA is calling on me and my group to basically design the future competitions and centennial challenges that will create and be publicly available to come up with the future of settlements on other planets. The mission statement of my group and my team is to conceive, investigate, and produce innovative human-centered designs which enable human beings to not only live but to thrive in space environments beyond Earth. And so what we do effectively is develop human-supporting design concepts for living in space and space exploration. I first started in industrial design, I transitioned into architecture, and then transitioned again into human-computer interaction with a robotics emphasis. So we have a very interdisciplinary group of individuals that we work with. There's five core members. 
And since incorporating a Search Plus, we've collaborated with subject matter experts and uh, individuals in the aerospace community, ranging from planetary geologists to ISRU subject matter experts, roboticists, astrophysicists, systems engineers, and, and the list goes on. So it's an extremely multifaceted and interdisciplinary group of people that we work with and collaborate with to come up with the proposals that we do. These are habitation projects. Most of them are surface habitats. And uh, I'm going to be speaking about two of these projects with you today. We got our start submitting to NASA's phase one 3D printed habitat challenge, which is a centennial challenge program that started in 2015, basically publicly soliciting concepts for autonomously constructed surface habitats on Mars. And we've continued to submit and compete within this competition up till uh, the present day. And we've been very lucky to have won both, which is effectively all of the habitat design solicitations that NASA has made for future habitats. The principle is that we want to create autonomously constructed surface habitats on, on Mars, and that has since changed to the moon, using local and indigenous materials to construct those habitats. It started out exclusively as a design challenge for a concept of operations, which is basically a plan for the habitat design and deployment sequence of a 3D printed hab. And uh, the competition has since transitioned to asking for construction prototyping demonstrations for 3D printing technologies that can actually construct these habitat concepts themselves. So it started with design and now it's transitioned into a full-on demo kind of challenge. The bottom line for what we do in putting together these habitat proposals is we want to support the future of human life in outer space over the course of future long-duration exploration missions to Mars. At the core of this is the question of what are we doing to keep people alive within the space habitats and the vehicles that they're going to be staying within for an extended period. So 3D printing a habitat, what are the basics of what it will take and what we're going to need to 3D print a habitat in, on the Moon and Mars. These are the foundational principles of what, what's going to happen within this concept of operations. So the bottom line principle that's going to enable us to create these future lunar and Martian settlements is this principle of ISRU, in-situ resource utilization. It's prohibitively expensive to bring all the materials that we're going to need to autonomously construct a habitat on the Moon and Mars from Earth. It's just too expensive to launch everything uh, using our current chemical rocket propulsion system. So we want to take advantage of the local and indigenous materials of the planet as much as we can. And what does that mean? That means that we're going to be using what's there. So regolith, which is Mars soil, comes to mind as a very readily available material. From there, we're going to prospect the, the land, or Mars or, or Moon, using rovers and flyers to ensure that we're actually going to be able to acquire the materials that we need and we're going to find an appropriate site for the construction of our habitat. From there, we're going to prepare the site, create a foundation of some sort for this habitat, collect the materials that we would need and store them in some way or process them if we might need to do that. <laughs> And at that point, we'll be able to deploy our 3D printing systems, which will be some combination of robotic elements that will uh, deploy at the site and use the materials that have been gathered locally in order to construct the habitat. 
And all of this is going to be happening telerobotically. Uh, on a Mars mission, we have limited bandwidth going from Earth to Mars, and we're looking at like a 20-minute time delay in each direction. So when you think about like a 3D printer that you have at home, a desktop 3D printer, and if something is wrong over the course of printing while you're there, you can witness it happening in real time, and you can do whatever you need to do to actually repair what the issue may be. We're not going to have that luxury when we're talking about autonomous construction on another planet. So all of these things need to be taken into consideration. How are we going to design for fault management, for anomalies, for things that inevitably go wrong, and they always do go wrong? So these were the program requirements for the 3D Printed Habitat Challenge. We were asked to design for 1,000 square feet of livable space, include three ethless volumes to uh, account for the environmental control and life support, come up with a structural and MEP layout, and introduce a number of exterior wall penetrations, and introduce functional space planning for four astronauts over the course of one Earth year. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our phase one proposal that won first place in 2015. Mars Ice House was our proposal for the phase one challenge. We introduced a habitat made out of water ice that would be enclosed within an ETFE inflatable membrane. Why did we choose water as the building construction material as opposed to the Martian regolith? First of all, it's a source of life. And from our perspective, we felt that any long duration mission where you're going to have a sustained presence on the planet is going to necessitate water as a resource to the astronauts, but also for all other kinds of, I guess you could say, ISRU needs, so energy, for example. It's an effective radiation shield. It's more effective in protecting the astronauts against radiation than regolith or aluminum because it's hydrogen rich. It's indigenous to Mars, so we know and we now have evidence that water ice is located even a few centimeters below the regolith surface. And finally, from a human factors perspective, we were interested in this idea that we can introduce translucency, providing natural light for humans and plants on the inside of this structure. We kind of have to ask ourselves, if we're going to be creating a habitat where it's going to take possibly six to eight months to travel to the Martian surface and then bury the astronauts within, I guess you could say, a bunker of regolith, what kind of connection are they going to have to their larger landscape? So translucency and the connection to the exterior landscape was something that we were really interested in as designers. So as I mentioned, we now have evidence that there is subsurface ice that can be mined and collected only a few centimeters below the surface. There are a number of typologies for how we would create surface habitats on other planets. One of them is that we would dig down and go beneath the surface to protect the astronauts against radiation. We really didn't want to do that, again, because we were interested in creating and having the astronauts connect to their larger landscape. So this is how we resolved to create a 3D printed ice shell on the inside of an inflatable module. As I mentioned, water is superior in protecting against radiation over aluminum and regolith. And so we introduced a double ice shell that would surround a vertically oriented lander that would house and contain all of the mechanical and uh, electrical components for the habitat. And that brings us to phase three, which is the second rendition of our habitat proposal for the 3D printed habitat competition. One ice house was sort of vetoed internally. 
the competition, as I said, was reinstated in phase two with a specific desire looking for regular soil-based habitats. And this past summer, we were able to win first place again in this reinstated portion of the competition. Another unique thing at this level in phase three is that they're not only looking for design proposals, but they're also looking for functional technologies to demonstrate how 3D printing could and would happen at the habitat scale. So let's go for it. As I said, they were pretty specific about the fact that they did not want water ice as a building construction material. So what they did is they came up with a material applicability scale, basically saying that you could use such and such materials to approximate the materials that would be found locally and indigenously on Mars. And then the teams were able to decide based off of the 3DP factors and the weight factors that were given to the material list here, what they wanted their material for 3D printing to actually be. So you see that there's a number of aggregates, polymers, additives, and binders, all that, uh, that the competition took into consideration in scoring each team's approach to the materials that were chosen. So Mars X House was our uh, proposal for the phase three competition. It is a regolith concrete design that we introduced with a high density polyethylene inner bladder. And that was our submission for phase three. Similarly to in our approach to Mars Ice House, we were combining a number of constructability and mission drivers from a systems engineering perspective with the human factors emphasis that we brought to the table as, de as designers and architects. So looking at light and views, program organization, functional organization of spaces, and then of course Mars environmental drivers, which are completely different from, from designing from Earth. So pressure, temperature, radiation, and site select. There's the Hercules lander in the background. We we're very lucky to collaborate with a group at NASA Langley that has been thinking about autonomous surface site establishment prior to the construction of any habitat systems. They basically came up with the system for how we would get power or water propellant. A rover all landed at the surface. And we basically picked up where they left off and said that we're going to use the payload bay of your lander to deploy all of the systems that would be necessary in the construction of our habitat. That basically became our design constraint for how we bring all of the systems, the 3D printer, the binders and additives that are required for our material for constructing the habitat, all within the payload bay of this single stage reusable. Here's a view of how the two 3D printers, we designed for two going at the same time for the sake of redundancy. So if one fails, the other could still pick up the slack. Uh, this is how they would be moving up and around the habitat in 3D printing the various material layers. We introduced a deployable mechanical core so that all of the mechanical components and the environmental control and life support systems could be pre-housed and then deploy upwards and also provide a platform for horizontal <coughs> printing of the various surfaces, which is a challenge in construction that still hasn't been addressed. That is an ongoing area of research. This was our solution at the time for how that might be able to happen. There are lots of components <laughs> that need to be orchestrated, and I guess you could say integrated within what would be a construction plan for the habitat itself. So not only do we have multiple materials to consider in the 3D printing process, but there's also pre-integrated components like the airlock, the windows, the eclis volumes, which all need to integrate and come together within an overall construction sequence. At the scale of a habitat, I mean, this is, this is a pretty ambitious scope for how all of these 
elements are going to be deployed and robotically in place. But if you think just like at a product scale, for example, if you want a circuit board to integrate with a 3D printed object, how does that happen? What is going to be the future of 3D printing so that these things could actually happen autonomously and without human intervention? Large-scale concrete 3D printing is a big industry today, and I'm really excited and really thrilled that because of the work that we've done in this competition, we're becoming more and more involved with that industry and with companies that are working on large-scale additive manufacturing for residences and low-income housing in particular. But we're such a far, far way away from 3D printed houses being like something that we can anticipate uh, or infiltrate in the construction industry today. We still have to consider things like seismic analysis and the integration of mechanical, electrical, and plumbing systems, lighting, and then, of course, fireproofing. So there's a lot that goes into making these systems automated, but there's still a long, long way to go before it becomes a full-fledged reality that can disrupt what it means to create uh, structures for living today. How do we design for people and integrate the needs of people in these future systems on other planets? And of course, ensure that you know, people are physiologically and psychologically happy and can thrive in their, new, in their new homes. And our most sincere desire is that we're not just creating these speculative proposals that, that don't advance the status quo or the state of the art for construction technology or for habitats and architecture here on uh, today. We're hoping that we can create value both for Earth and for space in the work that we do. Thank you. I called Melody at her home in Los Angeles, California to follow up with her about her experiences presenting to educators at Construct3D. Construct3D was really impressive. It was a wide range of students, academics, industry professionals, and design professionals. And the, the connecting point between everyone was the potential and the excitement and the enthusiasm surrounding 3D printing and what can be possible. It was so cool because there's so many individuals, particularly designers that I had heard of and known of and seen on Instagram and other press. And there they were at Construct3D in person and I was able to meet them in the flesh. That was really awesome for me. Beyond that, it's it's great to look comprehensively at a problem. I was inspired by how people were thinking critically about the potential of the technology, but also of the problems so that, that it could address. It's, it's no surprise that it is today radically transforming the way that we think about manufacturing in aerospace and eventually how we're going to be thinking about habitat construction and infrastructure construction on other planets too. That's what I'm saying is that my very uh, limited conception of 3D printing when I first started out as a student has really snowballed and, and, and grown and it's, it's very much aligned with how the industry has also expanded to become so ubiquitous as well. It has really led and contributed to broader ideas that we have developed that have to do with automation and robotic construction generally. And 
for us, that's been in the in the realm of, of architecture, that's been in the realm of how do we imagine autonomous construction to happen uh, on a different planet in, in the future. But it has also led to new ideas and new ways of thinking about how we can introduce automation in the short term within our building construction processes today. So it has also led us to explore how we can integrate 3D printing with other material processes, with processes that would allow multi-material printing, introducing structural components into buildings, particularly into concrete, like rebar, for example, and how we can automate that. It has been the springboard for a wide variety of thinking about the future of automation and robotic construction. A lot of the discussion, in my world at least, has been how is the aerospace industry going to become resilient and how are we going to reframe the narrative of going to space and doing technology development for space in a way that does not seem like we're just ignoring all of the issues that we have here on Earth in the short term and that we need to address. Much of the way that I framed the work that I started to do last month and the month before, right around when this pandemic started, was that I told myself I was going to set myself up so that when things returned to a new kind of normal, whatever that means, that I would be able to hit the ground running. If if I had to entreat educators or students to approach this period in a particular way, I would encourage them to think of why not use this period to really build the skill sets that will enable us to do amazing things once we can. I, I think that online communities are really supportive in this regard, should get people excited, especially in times when we're also isolated and collaboration is so difficult. There was a NASA telecom when they were announcing the three concepts for the commercial crew lander for 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 Artemis. And one of the NASA reps was saying that we work better from home because we can meet in an instant and communication happens very quickly. And um, I've found that that has tended to be the same for uh, the way that I've been working. But we've just had to change the way that we work creatively in some ways. I think that there's so much to be said for additive manufacturing to happen remotely, particularly in times like these. And I think it's it's one way to keep students excited so that when they do get their hands on a printer and when they can be the ones to actually send the file themselves, that they're able to do that. Thank you again, Melody, for speaking with Talking Additive about your projects. If you'd like to learn more about Melody's work and Search Plus, you can visit their website at spacexarchallrundogether.com. We hope that you have enjoyed our fourth episode for the Talking Additive podcast featuring Tim Pulla, Glenn Walters, and Melody Yasher, our guests from the Construct 3D 3D Printing in Education conference that took place this February at Rice University in Houston, Texas. If you would like to learn more about the conference, please visit their website at construct3dconf.com. And that is C-O-N-F dot com. In two weeks, we will return with episode five, which will feature Thomas Collett, Director of 3D Printing Materials and Marketing of Lavos Group, to talk to this key material alliance partner about their role in producing high-performance 3D printing materials for FFF technology. We explore these topics and more on Talking Additive. Enjoy our show? Subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. 
And we'd appreciate it if you could post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. Join the conversation about additive manufacturing by subscribing today at TalkingAdditive.com. And remember that you can discover a wealth of information on Ultimaker's website, including free-to-download white papers, case studies, advice, and more. To start exploring, visit www.ultimaker.com. Thanks again to Tim, Glenn, and Melody and the Construct3D 2020 team for joining us for this episode. Thanks also to series producer Hannah Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, and a thank you to Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's custom music and sound for the music and episode sound mix. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you again to our listeners. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.